Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with explorer and linguist of landscape, Robert McFarlane. There is a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Were you just on another were you just doing another interview? We yes, I was with Michael Enright up at CBC, oh. CBC um, okay. who, who I, I I'd, I'd met before actually here in Cambridge, but we we okay. had a great great conversation. So my voice is 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 well warmed up. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I good. I'm glad it, you feel that way rather than talked out. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I'm buzzed. Um, Chris, how are we? Do we do we need more? Do we need levels or anything? I don't. Maybe not. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I may I may say this I may say this again in the course of the interview, but you know I I've been reading you um, for years, and um, hmm. and I've read um, and I, t- I tend to. I tend to read you when I'm when I'm actually kind of resting or on vacation or traveling when I can kind of sink into the writing more than than I can even you know even in my in in preparing for a conversation like this. Um so I've read um all or part of I think most of your books wow. and uh, anyway it's just so wonderful to be oh, speaking. That's lovely to hear. Yeah. Um so I want to let's just let's just plunge in. You know that you there's this sentence you have um for nearly two decades I have been writing about the relationships relationships of landscape and the human heart. And I you know I just find that such an intriguing way for you to describe um your focus and that that intersection and I I wonder, you know, how would you how would you trace the earliest, deepest roots of this? And then, I, and even as I as I wrote that question, I realized that's kind of an underland metaphor. <laughs> um, but like the deepest roots of this orientation in your earliest life, in the in the background of your life and childhood. That 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 is a a, a searching question and and a very good one for it. And I think whenever whenever we find a route and follow it back, we will think we've reached its end and it will branch off again and, mm. and surprise us. But I guess if I were to follow the, 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 the first route back, it would, it would take me into the mountains that mm. I didn't live in, but I did in a sense grow up in. And those were the mountains of the Cairngorms in the northeast of Scotland, where my, uh, my grandparents lived for, for, for many decades. And that's really where I walked into landscape for the first time. And I have some pristinated memories from those places mm. where everything else from those years, those early years, is a mist. I can't remember anything from my Nottinghamshire childhood, but I can remember picking up a, a roe deer's antler that was as exotic as coral to me from the side mm. of a highland river. So I think that the power of that place... 
uh, those Arctic mountains of Britain, they uh, they grooved deep into me. And those, you know, those mountains, those Arctic mountains of Britain, as you say, are not are not really what people think of when they think of Britain. <laughs> Wasn't your grandfather also, in, he was a mountain climber involved in planning those historic Everest expeditions in the 20th century? Yes, he, he was. Um, I, I mean, it was that same grandfather? Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. He, he, he had um, six foot long ice, uh, ice axe, more or less, that was a sort of superhero's weapon mm. that let him levitate. But he was, he, he, as a young man in Switzerland, he stood on, on his first alpine summit and met General Bruce, who was one of the, the sort of military toffs who led the early Everest expeditions, 21, 22, and 24. Mm-hmm. And, and that thrilled him, as they say, to a, to a life of the mountains. And in the 50s, he was involved in, in, in planning around big Himalayan expeditions from an administrative point of view. But yeah, he climbed, skied, and walked mm-hmm. all over the world. Mm. And I also was intrigued to see somewhere a mention that your father that you grew up in coal mining country and that your father was a lung doctor. And that, yeah. you know, that juxtaposition also seemed to me to be at that point between landscape and the human heart. Uh, that's, uh, well, that's a very, I hadn't thought of it like that. Um, mm. But you're, you're, you're right. Um, he, it was a way that I began to look inside people, as it were. He would bring mm. these x-rays home of people's lungs, um, uh, confidentially, obviously, not not disclosing yeah, anything, but yeah. he would hold them up against the window as a light box, and we would, my brother and I, would see into this huge space of 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 the human lung, mm. and he would show us the spotting that showed, you know, black lung or silicosis, and he would just talk about what had happened to the people who were working almost under our feet. And the happiest right. person I knew when I was growing up was a coal miner who was no longer a coal miner. And he taught me how to whistle. <laughs> uh, right. Because <laughs> he loved being in the sun. Uh, um, so, yeah, so I, um, as I said to you um, before we began this, the, 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 the official interview, um, I have been reading you for years and kind of the sweep of your writing and exploring. And I, you know, I decided I couldn't quite, I I was really kind of agonized about how do we, how do I turn all of that into a conversation? So I decided that I really want to focus on Underland, which is your your newest book. Um, And also, I I think a book that people are discovering in this country in a a big way, which Mm. has been exciting to see. Um, But use that as kind of a focal point to also more expansively explore how you're thinking and accumulated way of seeing the world and experiencing it rolls around inside you. And I, I feel like that also does find expression in, in the writing of Underland. So, um, and it, it's, all, it's, it's so interesting to see how, I think you said it this way some, in another interview, that your body of work, the gradient of your body of work has been tending downwards. <laughs> <laughs> because you began writing about mountains, yeah. and mountains of the mind, and then there were the valleys and moors and wild places, and then there's yeah. traversing the world on foot in the old ways, and now you have gone down to the worlds beneath our feet. And you said, we know so little of the worlds beneath our feet. I think just naming that, hmm. not something that we even think about how little we know of the worlds beneath our feet. 
they they are dark dark places in in mm. in several senses that's i i uh, sometimes say to my children we we walk on this thin crust above this raging space of life and ma- matter in in all its vibrancy and and fury and we know nothing of it our sight stops at our toes it stops at ground level and mm. sight is so bound up with the with 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 modern ways of 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 knowing we can i say early in underland we can look up and see literally trillions of miles we can see light coming from stars mm. across the universe across the galaxy but we look down and we we can't see beyond the grass or the tarmac yeah and you went to to such an unexpected array of places <laughs> right beneath that that thin surface beyond which we can't see i mean it, it was really stunning i don't i don't know exactly what i expected when i opened the book but uh you know i think i expected the roots of trees right <laughs> i didn't expect caves and a dark matter laboratory mm. below the ground in yorkshire mm. and and this subterranean alternative universe in beneath Paris and <laughs> right <laughs> and burial chambers in Finland for high level nuclear waste and i'm yeah. just really curious when you started this adventure did you were all those places on your map they were not um they the only thing i knew is that the book would be a descent uh at its beginning and it would be a surfacing at its ending and mm. that is because that is the oldest story we have ever really told about ourselves the epic of gilgamesh the the oldest story of which we have written record is in one of its variants a descent to the underworld and and the return with knowledge of of children who have who have died uh and who were not seen but but the but the emissary to the underworld gets to glimpse them and report back to the grieving parent and that story is there in as you know in greek myth Uh, over and over again usually with really incompetent men involved screwing up the scenario orpheus goes down to get eurydice <laughs> safely back and then goofs it up because he can't control himself well where have we heard that before um and creon walls up antigone uh, to silence her so but that 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 descent and then the harder thing is is surfacing again Um so I knew it I wanted it to have that form but beyond that I I had no idea where where I would end up. Yeah that's so interesting to to think about also the implicit like it's it, it also um th- there's an echo oh, I mean obviously it's, it's what you're describing is it's it's another way to talk about how we know so little of the world beneath our, beneath our feet but that idea that we go down and we see and in some sense recover hmm. what we what we believed to be lost hmm. um, that, that's a that's a lovely way of putting it what we believed to be lost and mm-hmm. i think uh i say, i say very early on and it took me a long time many years really uh, to work this out that that there are three great tasks that the underland performs across cultures and and millennia really and these are to yield to dispose and to shelter so it it yields or mm. resource in a very material way but also metaphor and um, vision it um it it disposes of the bad stuff the 
the bodies that we want to get rid of in in, in brutal right, right. contexts, uh, the nuclear waste that we want to make the surface world safe from. But to return to your idea of the precious, it, it's where we put things that we care for most or value most. Um, yeah, and that's often the dead. Right, and and then I couldn't help it. You know, it it. it all the way through all all your adventures, there's also this existential and elemental echo to the physical act hmm. of going downwards and into the dark, right? Hmm. And you you know you say it, and and um, you know that since we, before we were Homo sapiens, humans have been speaking seeking out spaces of darkness in which to find and make meaning, and hmm. that there's something seemingly paradoxical that darkness might be a medium of vision mm. and that descent may be a movement towards revelation. Mm. And as you describe all of your adventures also, you also, even though that is true, that there's something, there's something strangely life-giving about that descent, <laughs> but but it you over and over again not just thought about but experienced how counterintuitive it is to <laughs> make that downwards move. Yeah, you're uh, often... Uh, your mind is screaming at you not to enter this space because it perceives it as a place of of confinement and deprivation. And indeed, for many people, that's what the underland has been, prisoners and forced laborers. Um, Mm. But it has also been a a place of of discovery and of revelation. And I, I, this, as we've touched on the the first, my first love is mountains. and, And the first book I ever wrote tried to understand why we, why we're drawn upwards, often at risk of our own lives. But early on in working on this book, I, re- I began to realize how young that impulse is within a, mm-hmm. a, a, a Western and modern imagination. It's only 300 years old. It's, it's, uh, it's a punk. <laughs> it's a stripling. Um, and yet we see, obviously, this, this May on Everest, 200-plus people queuing at 8,800 meters to get their summit selfie. Um, it's a powerful one, but it is a young one, unlike the urge to go into darkness and, and downwards. Right, that 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 the that the same qualities of mountains, which were once shunned and reviled by humanity, their steepness and desolation and perilousness, hmm. now are these prized experiences. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, that story is one of an astonishing revolution of perception, as, as, as I've called it. And you look back to the 17th century, and it's not absolute, but broadly speaking, there is, there is no fetish of the summit. There is no summit fever. And, and wow, I felt that fever mm-hmm. burning in me at times, and, uh, and it's still there. But you go back 65,000 years in Western Europe, and you find Neanderthal artists going into the into cave spaces, yeah. hard to reach cave spaces to make art on 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 the limestone walls of those caves. Wow! I mean, that sends yeah. a shiver down my spine across time. I'm I'm feeling like for somebody who's listening and hasn't read the book, I would love for them to just hear a little bit of like you know a little bit about one of the places you went and i and so i you know i i wouldn't choose i mean i mean maybe you could talk about going into caves because somehow that was <laughs> like just so incredible um I th- you know and also when i first started reading you and i actually was looking for it again and i couldn't find it i remember reading on one of your books about how you climb trees. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you weren't even, you weren't writing about climbing trees. It just was a feature of what you do. And so it became part of the narrative. And I felt so 
well, a little bit envious, but also just so, I found that so thrilling to think that that <laughs> is something that an adult can still do. Um, but also, I feel like you took that same that same freedom with your body and that same mm. sense of um, like curiosity mm. um, when you squeezed your body <laughs> through impossible spaces. I mean, I don't know. What's a story that you like to tell about this Underland journey if well, you have to choose one? I mean, I, I can t- I'd love to tell you a story. Um, I, I could um, just begin, I could just read you the first lines of, of, of the book, um, yeah. Which, uh, yeah. which are a story, which are sort of me, but a sort of every Underland story. I've, I'll just, yeah. I've just got it here. Great. The way into the underland is through the riven trunk of an old ash tree. Late summer heat wave, heavy air, bees browsing drowsy over meadow grass, gold of standing corn, green of fresh hayrows, black of rooks on stubble fields. Somewhere down on lower ground, an unseen fire is burning its smoke a column. A child drops stones one by one into a metal bucket, ting, ting, ting. Near the ash's base, its trunk splits into a rough rift, just wide enough that a person might slip into the tree's hollow heart and there drop into the dark space that opens below. The rift's edges are smoothed to a shine by those who have gone this way before, passing through the old ash to enter the underland. Mm. <laughs> and I, I should say that this ash, although it's figured there in a sort of mythic register, as it were, it does exist. Uh-huh. <laughs> it, it exists in the southwest. No, I, of... I, I, I believed that it was a real place. Okay, good. It is yeah. a real place, but also the, the beginning of, of every underland journey, as it were. Mm. So, So there's this counterpart to the reality of... Um, of the of the world beneath our feet, hmm. the worlds beneath our feet, um, which is also a huge part of the story that drew you to this, and that is 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 part of the story you tell. Which is that at the very same time that there's this, <clears throat> there's there's so much we're actually just we're it's a fr- it's a whole frontier of what huh. we're discovering about what is below, yeah. but that we also live in an age, as you say, of untimely surfacings, mm. of Anthropocene and unburials. Mm. Yes, yes. This, this um, history or the future, we might say, overtook this book as I wrote it. That's partly because I wrote it so mm. slowly. Um, it took six or seven years, really, to, to, to finish. Um, uh, but what overtook me was a sense that that the underland was rising to the surface in this restless earth that we have made and are are hastening the restlessness of around ourselves now. Mm. Uh, I mean, to, to give examples of what I mean by unburials, permafrost is no longer perma. It is melting and slushing, and as it does so, it's releasing ancient methane deposits. It's releasing the bodies of, of reindeer killed by anthrax, and the spores are alive and in the air again and, and setting off epidemics. It's releasing 50,000-year-old wolf pups in the, in the Yukon, um, perfectly preserved. And structures, too. An American Cold War missile base in the northwest of Greenland is rising to the surface of the ice cap. It was left because it was thought that it would always be buried by, the, by snowfall, but 
but now snow melt is exceeding snowfall mm. and so it's coming to the light and it it my it's frightening <laughs> it's frightening and the, and then there's also just the the phenomenon that is very ordinary for um of spring bulbs hmm. of flowers coming up earlier than they should right in right. so many of our places which is a, is, a, is another kind of resurfacing which is has beauty and yet is eerie and feels exactly, wrong. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. That, that's wonderfully put. Has beauty mm-hmm. but is eerie. Um, mm-hmm. that, that uncanniness of seeing things uh, out of place but also mm-hmm. out of time, really. Yes. Um, it, it, it is an eeriness. It's, it's not a horror and there are, there are horrific unburials that are happening but these quieter ones are... They are unsettled. There is a sense mm-hmm. that things are unsettled. In Britain last summer, we had this drought that went on for two months. And one of the things that happened was that crop marks um, began to show on the, the parched fields. And these crop marks register the presence of old buried structures, which no one yeah. had been able to see. But they show up like a kind of x-ray. We're back with x-rays again on, on the landscape. And because people fly more drones now, more easily, you can suddenly people started posting this footage. And they were like, that's a Roman watchtower, or that oh. looks like a Neolithic causewayed enclosure. And these right. had never been seen before, but suddenly this, the land was disclosing these, these old histories. Right. And, and, and a point you make is that, um, that in, a, in a larger sense, this, this, these, these phenomena also, this is the way you said it, disrupt simple notions of Earth's history as orderly. They, they're, they're really, they, they, they have a power to shift our perception of something as elemental as, as time. Huh. You said epochs and periods are mixing and entangling. Mm. Yes. I, I mean, time, spending six, seven years thinking about the underworld has really <laughs> messed up my sense of time. Um, it's it's deepened it, it's tangled it. I, I mean, to give an example of that entanglement, which we're all part of, we're, you know, we're, we're burning carboniferous fossil fuels and in so doing we're, we're melting um, ice that was laid down in some cases in the Pleistocene and we're, we're in so doing we're shifting the sea level sea levels of a, of a future Anthropocene. And once you see it, of course, it's self-evident, but it, it's an odd thing. We think of time as, I, I think, I thought of time as orderly beneath this, kind of stratified. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is that the underworld tells the future, and this, I was not expecting that at all. I should have known because Greek myth tells us the Sibyl at Cumae, the Oracle at Delphi, they foretell the future, but they do so by peering into the underworld uh, right and now we're doing it scientifically we're, we're we're ice coring down to possibly up to a million years ago now in terms of data on in antarctica and we're using that in part to foretell our own climate futures <laughs> right right uh, um this is this is um you know in in a very different context um these days um, more the context of how people in this country and your in your country as well are mm. very kind of socially and politically unsettled. Mm. Um, I find it useful and in its way calming to invoke, you know, what Martin Luther King Jr. called the long arc of the moral universe. Wow, what a phrase! Which is right, which is not 
real time, right? With what we've done with time in this particular <laughs> moment is create this this notion of real time, which is that something is more real because we are watching it happen, and that's just not true. And it's mm. not the way it's not the way we live our way forward into other realities, mm. right? Mm. And th- and then what you right. bring forward, which which feels to me, you know, again, it's a, it's a different context, but it's a corollary to this is this notion of of deep time, which also just sets our unrest. <laughs> Not necessarily in a soothing context, but but in fact in a more reality-based frame of mind, right? And the, the, yeah. way, the way time works. Well, I'm glad I'm glad that's how it feels to you because that's how it feels to me too. And mm-hmm. there is a very now to me familiar and I think ethically uh, intolerable move that is made around deep time, which I see more and more on a kind of climate right, as it were, which is to say, oh, it's fine. It, the planet's old. It, it, it has a long time ahead of it. We'll be gone. None of this really matters. Right. Um, that's the deep time alibi. Uh, hu- <laughs> human time becomes subject to a, what what philosoph- moral philosophy calls a flat, flat ontology. Everything is equal in its in- insignificance. But that, to me, is derelict. And like, why work for a different present or future? Yeah. Right. Because it'll all, you know, it'll all pack down in the right. end, geologically speaking. <laughs> but, right. Um, and you, you, I don't know, do you, I, I, I meet that quite a bit, um, this sort of shoulder shrug. And I, 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 I can't abide it. And and for me, and it sounds like for you, uh, and put in context partly by that wonderful Martin Luther King Jr. quotation, deep time is a sharpening context for me. It says, mm-hmm. look at the gift of being now. Look at the astonishing responsibility of legacy leaving and look at what you have inherited right. in the, the wonder of this world and what 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 will our time leave? That that for me is the big Anthropocene question. And it's it's posed beautifully by Jonas Salk, the immunologist who who, who invented more or less single handedly the polio vaccine and has helped eradicate that that disease. Are we being good ancestors? Yes, are we being good ancestors? What a question to be asking. Such a it's yeah, it's different, mm. isn't it, to being a a parent mm. or a grandparent? It's quite different because it's it's asking you to be responsible for people you not only haven't not met but will never meet. Right. Right, it's asking you to attend to the to the value of what you do and plant now. Yep. Um Precisely for a world you'll never see. Yep. Um, yep. I want to read just some lines of um, what you wrote about, you know, deep time. Now, you said you have written that deep time was coined by John McPhee. And I always thought that was a phrase of geology. But did. <laughs> well, it, uh, as far as I know, <clears throat> John McPhee did does coin it in Annals of the Former World, which wow. is his great, uh-huh. his great work of geology. Um, there, right. are, there are versions of it in, in, in late 18th century geology when it's emerging. James Playfair talks about the abyss of time. Okay. But oh, I that's think McPhee, McPhee yeah. coins it, yeah. And it's more poetic. Deep time is more poetic. Um, so, so you wrote, for deep time is measured in units that humble the human instant, millennia, epochs, and eons instead of minutes, months, and years. Deep time is kept by rock, ice, stalactites, seabed sediments, and the drift of tectonic plates. Seen in deep time, things come alive that seemed inert. New responsibilities declare themselves. Ice breathes 
rock has tides, mountains rise and fall. We live on a restless earth. Mm. There's another place you say that, you, you know, speaking of how, you know, using, seeing deep time as a radical perspective that, that provokes to responsibility and action, you said it, you know, it, with this framework, uh, this, this, it leads us to reimagine our present, um, to reimagining our present, countermanding its quick greeds and furies <laughs> with older, slower, slower stories of making and unmaking. I do feel like you that that kind of language um, feels very, um, it, first of all, it feels very, very present to the moment. And it, Good. Yeah. It, it makes it more expansive, right? It gives us space. I'm I'm glad you 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 find it present. I I do too. You know, when I'm looking in the hopeful places, not the yeah, <laughs> not, yeah. The, not the other ones of which there's yeah. an abundance. Um, I mean, I I don't know where you hear it, Krista, but I I find it in um, in the language around um, sunrise movement, around um, uh, extinction rebellion, in large part in this country, around around Greta. Thunberg. Among, I, I work with a lot of young people in in conservation contexts in this country, and they are incredible. They see things clearly. They have a strong sense of responsibility, outwards in in space, but also forwards in time. And uh, this this is this is very exciting to me to be around. Is that is that where you're finding these? these yes, energies? absolutely. And I and I think and I see that same kind of energy in other spheres in you know in the unmaking and remaking of um, you know so many of our forms of institutions yep. and ways of living that came down to us don't don't work and are not nope. human humane and yep. yeah so I, I see I see corollaries to that again as you say not necessarily the most highly publicized places kind of below the radar where people are actually living um, but I do I do see that everywhere yeah. There is um, uh, there is one image at the at the heart, as it were, of of, of underland and and of the underland, which which is the hand, um, the 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 opened palm, the stretched fingers, and that that we know first is in a way the first mark of art, that the, this mm-hmm. um, the hand stencil, as it's called, which was made uh, in the early in early cave art by the the, the maker would would place their hand, his or her hand, on the cave wall and then take a mouthful of ochre, red ochre often, and then spit the dust against the mm. hand and then pull the hand away and so you, 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 you leave the ghost print. And that, that yeah. and it's, uh, it's such an image. And for mm. me, that hand of, that open hand, the hand of, that is reaching across time, that is pressing against rock uh but leaning also into the future but also the hand of of help and of collaboration and i found it everywhere actually uh, that <sighs> it astonished me i met such kindness such collaboration such readiness to 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 reach out yes that is so much a part of the story that you tell of the hospitality that greets you everywhere hospitality that's a wonderful yes mm-hmm. that's exactly mm-hmm. right um I, I do want to speak also about um, language and mm. uh, the power of words and kind of the magic of words that I feel um, you surface in, in, your, in your writing and also in your investigations. Um, I mean, even the word discover, 
somewhere I learned in your writing is is it has this underland um, <laughs> con- connotation, right? To yeah. reveal by excavation, yeah. fetch yeah. up from the depths. Um, the book where you, I think, have focused um, most explicit. I mean, this runs all the way through your writing and thinking, but the land, the the book landmarks. Yes, I think is. Um, it's just kind of devoted to that. Um, it makes me think of um, how in sacred traditions, you know, naming has this power. Um, and, you know, in Genesis, like the, 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 the original creative act is next to making order out of chaos is, is, is calling things into being by giving them names. Yes. Um, yes. There's a place where you were writing about... Um, I think like the Isle of Lewis and Arizona, uh, yeah. sort of an Apache tribe in Arizona, and you said words act as a compass. Place speech serves literally to enchant the land, mm. to sing it back into being, and to sing one's being back into it. Yes. Well, uh, the first thing I should say in response to that 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 fine thought is that that not all naming is good naming. There, mm-hmm. there, there is bad naming, and naming can, as we know, be an appropriative act of conquest and overwriting. Yes, and and the control of of well, I think that's that's the, that's the other side of that's yeah. that power, right? Is the power exactly? Mm-hmm. It, it is such a foundational act to 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 give name to, and mm-hmm. with names, often they are I sort of call them portals to, to 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 love and care we 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 rarely care for what we cannot name um mm-hmm. uh but but yes there is bad naming but there is also i mean i became fascinated over uh, four years in the in the mid 2010s uh, if i can call it that historically <laughs> uh, a few yeah. years back let me say um by 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 lexis for for landscape and and the sense that we were making do certainly in british english increasingly with a a generic p- portfolio of you know hill, field, wood, river, stream, <laughs> right. town, um, and I and and I sensed, I knew that there was this word hoard there within the, the the wonderful diversity of languages and dialects, subdialects we have in in these islands, and of course, you have uh, you, your own rich word hoards through indigenous languages, particularly um, and regional languages, and, and and this was particularly focused in. For me, in the beginning, in Gaelic, uh, Scots, yes. what we might call Scottish Gaelic, but Gaelic effectively, and so to give some examples from the the more the moorland language of the Outer Hebrides, Runach um, Muim is means in long form the shadows cast on moorland by clouds on a sunny day, and. <laughs> Uh, and there is a there is a, a drama right unfolded out of this this two word phrase in in the mind's eye. Mm, yeah, I mean, uh, and you just you un- I mean, how many you've uncovered? Probably, I mean, hundreds certainly, perhaps it's about thousands. two two thousand probably in the first edition, and then I uh, two and a half thousand because people began to send me <laughs> these letters would pour yeah. in from around the world, around around Britain as postcards, like like feathers coming. Uh, and you know, just reading the words themselves and the the definitions of them is like each one of them is like it's like reading poetry. It's like reading <laughs> lines. I mean, I was looking through the landmarks book. Um, and thinking, you know, could I, 
I mean, this is just, and I, and so I, do, I don't want to even pronounce the words themselves because I would mispronounce them. So many of them are from Gaelic, or Welsh, or Cornish. But I, but you know, here's just one page of this is hills, fells, and peaks. So you know, there's a word for a shelter used by mountaineers, typically an overhanging rock. A word, Alpenglow. I can say that one. Oh yeah. Light of the setting or rising sun seen illuminating high mountains or the underside of clouds. It comes from mountaineering. A hill with precipices, Gaelic. Uh. Another word, sharp ascending ridge of a mountain. Um, there's a word in Irish, a special word for summit. There's a word for hillock in the West Country. There's a word um, in southern England and Wales for a conspicuous hill with long sight lines from its summit, suitable wonderful? for a beacon fire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's... There's a word in Scots. It's Bothy, right? Bothy, yeah, Bothy, yeah. yeah. A hut or shelter maintained in remote country. But yeah. it just goes on and on and on. Uh, yeah, I think that, I mean, I counted 42 words in Gaelic for different kinds of summit of mountains. So shtob, uh-huh. a shtob uh, in the place name would de- it always designates quite a sharp, a sharp peak. And a stack is quite sharp, but has 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 more breadth to it. And then there are terms which indicate there are corries, that's to say kind of glacially scoured hanging valleys present in the summit summit block as it were and um this mm. is this is all born of a, a, a tension that is a function in turn of both devotion and of labor really of the need to be able to describe identify specify work with landscape Right, it's lived. It's, yes, it's, it comes of living with the landscape. Yeah, and we have, you know, we we're always we're language making, naming species. We're always generating incredible, precise idiolects for certain aspects of our of our dwelling and our being and our practice. But I think it is broadly true that um, that these specialized lexies, lexicons, have 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 fallen away in terms of the ways we speak of of landscapes and their, their, their inhabitants and their more than human worlds. And I wanted to, as it were, rewild a little the ways we, mm. the resources we have for, for that right. kind of description. Um, yeah, there's that, whole, there's that whole new world of rewilding, and I love the idea that uh-huh. the language has to be rewilded too. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, um, you, you are part of a, you you are a, a, an important voice in what I, what seems to me it's not a new genre of writing about the natural world, but obviously, right? There's yeah. so many Rachel Carson and John Muir, and we could name so many people who've done this. Um, but I do feel like there's a I feel like this is rising, surfacing, surfacing. Um, at the same time that. Hmm. That whatever, we're losing. whatever language hmm? that that we're losing that we're that we're that things are vanishing well no i feel but i feel like this kind this this kind of writing and re, renaming is 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 actually i feel like this genre of writing is hmm. um is rising up again a bit do you not feel that well i do i i absolutely do and i i mean it, it is as almost as old as as literature, yeah. I mean, you could take yeah. it back in in a British context to the Celtic Christian devotional poetry that was mm-hmm. written written on remote skerries and islands in the seventh eighth century that we have. Right. Of. What is that poem? That that kind of well, anyway. There's that that kind of the, core poem, and it's all about images of the natural world. 
Well, I, is I mean, Welsh? there's the Mabinogion, um, which is one of the, which is the great medieval Welsh epic, which is yeah obsessed with natural human yeah. metamorphosis. We've got Beowulf uh, as, yeah. a, as the in the old English and Gawain and the Green Knight in the 14th uh, century. Yeah. Um, but it, so it is. You're right. It is an ancient, ancient form with many uh, sort of sustaining lines of filiation that run through to the present. But I, I think there is something happening now and it has been for 10 or 15 years and it's it's just no coincidence that it that this no. kind of 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 polyphonic um uh, urgent celebratory elegiac writing should be rising up at at a time of 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 clear ecological crisis yes yes and even where i i just think for just about everyone on the planet wherever they live whether the consciousness is of ecological crisis or just that the weather is changing, which is just is the element in which we move, right? And yes. weather, which has been the stuff of small talk. <laughs> the stuff <laughs> of small talk, yes, yeah. has suddenly yeah. become, as Rebecca Solnit puts it, the, the mother of the mother of all questions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it. It. I. 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 I'm just so intrigued with this idea, also of, of. Of. And you know, this is manifest in this in the writing genre that we're talking about of what happens when language meets landscape, mm. and you know, it strikes me, on the one hand, which I think is also true of language for of spiritual language of language for God or for transcendence. Um, yes. Sacred language, is it? Is it? you're always actually uh, trying to put words around something that ultimately defies words. Yeah. And, and, I, and I found that also, like, you know, there was a point in, in your book um, several times. I mean, it was, there was a place when you were in the caves of Somerset and you were talking about mm. squeezing through spaces and you had this sentence, in that vanishing point, neither of us speaks, language is crushed. Mm. So that's, but, and yet, and yet, we can't help but try to put words to it, <laughs> no. right? And and it feels to me like, and it's, this is so true in your writing, um, and also I think in this this part of the human literature around natural world, more than other kinds of literature, that that the attempt to meet the natural world with words leads to these extremes of lushness and whimsy and poetry, hmm. and as you say, also this incredible specificity. Yes, well, that's that's right. There, it it is a, a devotional act in many ways, uh, yeah. <laughs> but it is also bringing utterance to its brink. Because, as I write in Lam, light has no grammar. <laughs> Gra- granite doesn't sing in 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 words that we could speak. And so, in a way, there is a, a wonderful falsehood at the heart of all of it, which is the notion that that language is in any way mimetic here. And for some people, that's that's a collapse of the project. It's like, well, why, why bother? Mm. But for me, the the artifice is part of the wonder. Clearly, we yeah. are we are building structures that bear no um, correspondence relationship with with what they're describing. But they they can be extraordinary, evocative, um, lush, sometimes lush, um, bare, sometimes bare forms mm-hmm. of speaking. Um, mm-hmm. And I I've noticed uh, how important female and um and and um indigenous voices are becoming in in the conversations around place 
and climate at the moment. Um, yes. Language doesn't, landscape doesn't speak in one voice. It speaks in many voices. And right. the best writers for me, Elizabeth Rush, Robin Wall, Kimmerer, Bathsheba Demuth, yes. uh, these are writers who are who are putting their ear to many voices and, and um, celebrating precision, but also diversity, if that makes sense. Yes. And I feel like the word diversity isn't really big enough, right? I mean, it's... it's... Yeah. multitudinousness <laughs> if that's a word that's a, that's a exactly it is it is yeah. biodiversity in the fullest yes. sense of, of of bios of life um multitudinous is a glorious uh, term yeah. for it i think itself a kind of <laughs> plenished term yes um there's you know what also strikes me about um, especially when, so when you're writing where you just lay out, you know, these pages and pages of words and glossaries, um, there's also, as you say, not always, sometimes what is being described as grave mm. or perilous, but there's also just this playfulness that runs all the way through it, oh. right? You know? Which, I'm glad you hear that. I'm, yes. I, I sometimes think I don't make enough jokes, <laughs> but I'm, <laughs> I, I'm glad you, 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 you hear that. Yeah. Well, and it seems to me that it matches what it, it's describing, right? Because that is also, um, yeah, I don't know. Trees beg to be climbed, right? <laughs> they, they they beg to be climbed. I could I could read you a um, a moment of surfacing if you want, just a yes, few sentences, because yes. um, yeah. uh, those moments of surfacing where where the where the soul is drinking mm. so deeply of the upper world again, uh, having been down. Um, let me see if I can. Um, let me see if I can find this. Um, so we're just coming out of of this uh, un, un, underworld in the in the Mendips, this limestone system we've just been in. I feel the snap of the black stone's jaws at the empty air below my toes, and then I am out of the swallet and into the hollow, and warm air is rolling around me, and my bones grow again in the storm of light, and ferns furl their green over and into me, and moss thrives on my skin and leaves teem in my eyes, and Sean and I sit laughing, knowing for those few moments that to understand light, you need first to have been buried in the deep down dark. Yeah, and that, Yeah, that, we were laughing. <laughs> yeah. For wonder, <laughs> for, for mm. sheer wonder and relief. Um, I, I feel also that this adventure you've been on is also... It's also full of, um, dis the, you know, the realities and discoveries that things that we're only now learning to see mm -hmm. in order to put words around. Um, it feels to me like one of those things, I, I don't know if this is new to you, but it was new to me. And just the way you describe about the connection between ice and the nature of ice and memory, oh. that ice has a memory and the color of this memory is blue. Um, yeah, ice remembers in detail, and it remembers for a million years or more. Ice remembers forest fires and rising seas. Ice remembers the chemical composition of the air around the start of the last ice age. Was that a discovery to you? I I am a I am a cryophile. I I yeah. love ice with all my with all my warm blooded heart, and <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I always have done, and so I. I 
it, it, it wasn't a surprise to me, but, but delving into the science of that memory, if we can call it that, was, mm-hmm. was a revelation. And I remember standing in a cold store. I, I'm, I'm, I'm in Cambridge, that's where I teach, and, and just nearby we have the British Antarctic Survey, which is the heart of polar science, really, in, in, in Britain. And I went into this cold store with Robert Mulvaney, a climate scientist, glaciologist, and he, he took out a section of core that had come up from from deep down in mm. in in the ice cap, the Antarctic ice cap. And then he took out a slice of it and held it up. And it's like looking into a planetarium or a night sky. It's it mm. sparkles this stuff. And the sparkles are bubbles. And the bubbles are air that was trapped when this ice fell as snow and softly, softly caught air in its layers. And as the ice gets buried, so the air gets compressed into these bubbles and the bubbles are memory they remember <laughs> what the atmosphere was like what it contained at that time and i i love this thought of of, of ice as having a memory and we're learning now to read that memory to recover yes. that memory even yes. as the memory itself is being lost through melt mm. another um thing that i learned through reading you is that that even in the last couple of years, there's been this revelation of the what you called a deep life's ecosystem in the Earth's crust hmm. that is twice the volume of the world's oceans, containing a biodiversity comparable to that of the Amazon. <laughs> yeah, what about that, eh? <laughs> I mean, it's just uh, this. This all came out after a five-year research project disclosed its findings in, I think, um, about nine months ago. And so, oh yeah, guys, there's um, folks. There's a there's there's an entire ecosystem down there which dramatically exceeds in biomass the entire human population of the Earth at present. is incredibly is incredibly diverse, um, and and it goes seven miles down and probably more. I mean, what about that uh, for for a, a declaration of of how little we know? Yes. You know, I most of the podcasts I listen to are from BBC Radio 4. Um, and I, I listen to a number of science podcasts because, you know, like, why was that what you just told me, what was revealed in 2018? Why was this not on the front page of the New York Times, right? I know. This is news, right? This is news. <laughs> huge news. Huge news. Uh-huh. That, and, 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 and we stand on ignorance. Um, yes. And, and it is good to be... To be reminded of that, and that that's not a a failing. That that's a, a, a humility and a and an incentive. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, my worry always when we discover a new horizon of life is, of course, that we will turn our extractive and annihilatory yes, <laughs> attention yes. towards it. Yes. So that, that's that's um, you know deep sea mining currently is uh, a new mm-hmm. extractive horizon, partly driven by the need for. Um, certain certain elements and resources to to help um, the transition to renewable energy. It's um, or at least that is that is how uh, industry is representing it. Yeah, and another another whole new it's like a whole new planet in our midst is what you I don't it, this language of the world wide wood. <laughs> uh, the the wood wide web. Wood wood wide wood wood wide web. Wood Wide Web, yeah. The, the wood, wood Wide, right, sorry, Wood Wide Web. The Wood Wide Web, yeah. Okay. I, would that that were my phrase, but it is It is not. Um, um, yeah, did, did, 
did you was that fresh to you the, the this revelation of the wood wide web no no i mean i that for some i i don't know if i'd heard that phrase before or not i mean i think i first really took in that phrase um i i have been aware of this um it's like kind of what we're learning about trees and yeah. yes and forests and and things like fungi and para- and mosses which were things we've thought of as parasites it turns out are essential to vitality and 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 collaboration collaboration uh, the um, mutuality uh, of um, our, yeah. yeah this yeah. glorious uh, mutualism which is about 450 million years old we think um, because a fossil photograph lithograph effectively exists from around yeah. then showing it in action where whereby fungi certain fungi uh, ecto and endomycorrhizal fungi um plug into the roots of tr- of trees and plants at a cellular level and create an interface across which um resources and and messages to some degree can be carried and and then yeah. those fungi plug into the roots of other trees and so the trees can as Suzanne Simard the pioneering forest ecologist who who helped uh, break open this ground writes uh, can can talk to one another um and this, you know, once you've met this idea, wow, it shakes the ground you walk on. A, yeah. a, a park is a is a wondrous place, um, but it also challenges our ideas of of what an individual is, what it, what, what an organism is, um, um, where um, where being begins and mm. ends. It does not end at the body horizon. We we know that in, increasingly and in, in complex and often political ways. Mm. There was a um you were describing a conversation in in Underland with <clears throat> Martin Sheldrake in Epping Forest. Yeah, Merlin, Merlin quoted, the, the wonderfully named Merlin Sheldrake. Merlin, the, sorry, Martin, yeah, Merlin. And you quoted him, it was just fantastic as saying, My early superheroes weren't Marvel characters, but lichen and fungi. Um, and that they annihilate that these that lichen and fungi annihilate our categories of gender. They reshape our ideas of community and cooperation. They screw up our hereditary model of evolutionary descent. They utterly liquidate our notions of time. <laughs> <laughs> What's more superhero than that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, uh, the, the, listen out for the name of Merlin Sheldrake because he mm-hmm. is he is writing a just finishing a book on 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 fungi. And their superheroism okay. and the the ways they they stitch our world into relation uh, in, in in astonishing and, and hugely consequential, but largely invisible ways. So yeah, Merlin was one of these many people who conjured open uh, the 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 underland for me and kind of helped me me see into it. I needed that. But you know, many travelers into the underworld in myth and story have historically been accompanied by a guide. Sometimes. Sometimes those guides are unreliable, um, yeah. uh, but 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 you need someone in in classical language, Greek that's called the psychopomp, <laughs> the, <laughs> the the accompanist. But um, mm. Merlin Merlin was one of those many who 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 helped me see in the dark. Um, I let's see how to how to. I, I think that you're also making. Um, I mean, you know, kind of circling back around where we mm-hmm. where we have circled around in this in this conversation. And I'll say, let me say this: we we were speaking a minute ago about places we find hope and kind of new new imagination yes. for new realities forming. And 
I do, I, I do experience, and, and you know, I, every good word gets overused in human cultures, right? So I feel like now the word ecosystem is being overused, but, um, but it's a it's a total. Um, it's a tectonic shift, really, in, in, in like thinking about how institutions work and leadership works and how things happen, yep. um, how, how movements work, how forms are changed, how minds are changed, mm-hmm. um, how we work together to create uh, new realities. Um, it, it, does, it does feel to me like these kinds of discoveries about how reality works, how life works, are, are, are not only relevant to how we're reimagining, I think somewhere you said historical narratives of progress, but also yes. re- remaking how we structure our life together. I hope so, uh, Krista. I really hope so. Um, the, 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 at the core of them is something a bit more complex than just connection. It's entanglement. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, entanglement is different to connection because connection is purely a structural effect. But entanglement is is as it were, uh, uh, requires a, a mutualism to be recognized, that there are consequences within uh, of entanglement, that if, if, if one thing is destroyed or, um, or, or, or leaned too heavily on or exhausted, then, then this, will, uh, th- this, this will recoil, as it were. And we, we have too long thought of ourselves as, a, as an arrogant species that can draw on the world as inexhaustible standing resource whether that be to provide or to 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 accept that which we um, dispose of and that relies on a very monadic notion of of being mm. and and these these revelations of of entanglement are they 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 destroy those ideas and they show us to be profoundly porous and to be to be nothing but holes almost <laughs> and and string i i was i was a couple of years ago in a conversation with um a group of people who were all um you know in their 20s early 30s and they um this language i think the topic was supposed to be scaling which is such a 20th century <laughs> hierarchical, right? Like survival yeah. of the fittest, of the way we've thought, which isn't true to how the world works. Yeah. And I think that the, they came up with this language of communal flourishing. But as you say, it was very complex, right? It wasn't just about being connected. It, it, yeah. Sometimes the way I think about it sometimes is can we get our vulnerability and our flourishing uh, connected? But uh. But this was also acknowledging the reality that in communal flourishing, some things will live and some things will die. Some things will get bigger, some things will get smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet that there could be kind of a web of mutuality in which all of that was held. Well, uh, I think Donna Haraway, who, whose work you will, will know, she talks about making kin. Um, mm, as, uh, mm-hmm. and, 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 and another lovely word she has is sympoesis. So poesis has that, that sense of creation, of creating, but sim gives us that creating with. So the idea of making, making kin and of sympoesis. And, and for Haraway, working with Lynn Margulis, the uh, sort of founder of epigenetics, if you like, this, yes. is, this is happening at a at a genetic level, an epigenetic level, as well as at a kind of creative and communal and societal 
level. So it, it, it kind of has form as a way of proceeding, if you like. Life has always fl- literally flourished and, and grown through co-making. Mm. Yeah. Um, okay, this is, this is a turn. Um, Minecraft. <laughs> I was so surprised, and this just reveals the limits of my knowledge, that um, you, you wrote a piece about Minecraft, and you started it by saying, um, the imaginary landscape in which I spend most time is born not of a book or a film, but of an algorithm. And I guess you spend time in Minecraft with your, one of your children or with yeah. your children? Yeah, when I was writing, when I wrote that, that short piece about Minecraft, I, I was yeah. spending a great deal of time in 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 that underworld <laughs> and it was also the time when i was um you know when i was i was in physical underlands a great deal and and i just i became fascinated by it as this as this virtual uh, realm of course people have people have written about how it is a sort of parable of of extractive human progress you know you right. got to get down there and mine your resources and build and build and build <laughs> uh, but it also has this realm this mythic realm called the nether <laughs> And the nether is what you you pass into uh, through a portal that you construct out of obsidian. Um, and the nether is, is 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 all our underlands rolled into rolled into one. And so I found myself sometimes I would come back from these these trips into into you know, nuclear waste storage facilities or, or cave <laughs> systems, and um, and then I would be sitting down with my kids, and they'd be like, "Let's go to the nether, Dad. <laughs> I've just come back from there." <laughs> so so does um does 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 this phenomenon of minecraft i mean does are, so there are echoes for you or possibilities in this experience for the kinds of things we've been we've been talking about to be um to, to be explored in new ways or well, <laughs> named I, in new ways. Yeah, I mean, Minecraft uh-huh. in its pure form, as, as mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure you, you played a great deal. Non-stop. But you know that the, I think that the pure form of Minecraft is, is so-called the creative mode. Um, and and it, is, it is sort of without limits, as it were. It's a sandbox game where you, where you you create your own um, forms and visions, and mm-hmm. and I've I've loved watching my children build these 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 utopias, really these these dream worlds, uh, out of the resources that they find. So I think there is there is a conceptual beauty to it, but of course you know each person builds the structure they they dream of, and those dreams are not always good ones. Mm. One of the things you say about landscape. Um, a deep truth about about landscape, which is also a deep truth about humanity, um, is that when we look at a landscape, we do not see what is there, but largely what we think is there. Like that 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 what is savage or bleak or beautiful is kind of in the eye of the beholder. Um, yeah, yeah. Which we, is yeah. well, I mean, in a in a way, this is a truism, but it but but I think it's mm-hmm. worth um, re-encountering because. We, we naturalize so many views of of landscape, but of course they're all, in a sense, uh, constructed. Uh, Blake says, "Oh, the tree that the tree that moves some people to tears oh. is for- hello, uh, hello, hello." Oh no! Oh dear! Oh yes! Oh okay, you're back. Roger. Yes, can you hear me? 
Um, Krista? Yes, can you hear me? Oh, yes. I'm. Oh, okay. are, we, are we back? No, you you also went away and then, and uh, then yeah, resurfaced. Nothing, um, oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Um, shall I pick up again? Just with... Yeah. Um, yeah, we um yes, you, do you remember where we were um Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, I'll start yeah. Okay. Well, in so, in some in some sense that's I guess a truism, but it's worth looking at again because we naturalize so many views of landscape, I guess it's it's good to unsettle them a little bit. Blake says that the tree that moves some people to tears of joy is for another just a green thing that stands in the way. <laughs> All right. All right. Um and uh, but I think mountains really yeah, they they're they're the best example of this. Three three four hundred years ago, they're they're undesirable, as we've said, and um, and then a, a, an aesthetic and and cultural revolution occurs, and suddenly they become fetish objects that that people are literally dying to climb. And this yeah. is this is amazing. So we our landscapes are formed of strata of of memory and association, as well as soil and rock. So. Um... There's a there's a moment in in where you say, in in writing Underland, I filled dozens of notebooks, some of which were destroyed or rendered illegible by the environments in which I carried them, and that just somehow felt just right to me. <laughs> Good, uh, yeah, that's the shadow archive of of, of Underland. I mean, it 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 came out at five hundred pages or whatever, but there were another. There are another eight hundred, another three hundred pages when I f- finished the first draft, and then there's then there's this um, sort of smelly, scruffy, foxed box mm. of of, mm. no- of notebooks, um, some of which are yeah, the water just got to them and and they became these Rorschach prints. <laughs> <laughs> so you you you've also said that what started as a journey into pure matter became, to your surprise an exploration of hidden human depths, both wondrous and atrocious. Mm-hmm. We all carry underlands within us, but only rarely acknowledge their existence. And it does seem to me that so much in the landscapes you explore and also the science you explore around it, the discoveries we're making, mm. speak to and illuminate the depths of human experience. Um, well, I, it's lovely to hear you say that. Uh, they they illuminate only only a few a few parts of them, of course, and and only mm-hmm. the the corners I can I can see when I raise the taper to to my eyes. But um, but I I guess when I'm alluding to that sense of of the underlands we carry with us, that for me is trauma. It's um, lost memories or, or, or buried memories, in some sense. So that's, as it were, the the, the dark matter in, in in a moral right. The dark it, matter in <laughs> us, in us, um, where the light does not intersect. Yeah, right. yeah, and and either yeah. we can't bring those things to the light, or we choose not to. Um, mm-hmm. And I did. And there's a there's a chapter in the middle of, of Underland, um, which takes place up in the Slovenian. Italian limestone borderlands, which is about, which was the darkest place I'd ever been. That's about some of the um, reprisal killings that were carried out, really using yes. the landscape as a means of execution and a means of disposal right. in the in the closing years of the Second World War. And the sinkholes in in the cast limestone landscape there became a, a place where people were taken to and 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 pushed into either alive or or, or wounded. Or dead, um, and and 
bodies and bones are still being recovered from these places. It's extremely disputed, complex, highly politicized history that is still itself unburying again yeah. and again. It's yeah. an unclosed wound in in that part of Europe. And that 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 was a a, a terrible place to to come to to terms with. And that that's really where the the heart of the horror is. And and then oddly, you know, hope was found in a nuclear waste storage facility where we were people were trying to do the best they could. In Finland. In Finland, that's right. Mm-hmm. There was a moment when you were in Okay, so is is drift is the acronym right, drift? For the, yes. Then and what? Sorry, what does that stand for? Um, yeah, just say a little bit about what drift is. Which okay, is, drift. Which is, well, drift has two meanings in the underworld. Mm-hmm. Um, in mining, drift is the tunnel networks that, that that mines spread out. So as they excavate their resource, they create uh, they create a tunnel system, and that's that's known as drift. Mm-hmm. Um, and partly because of that, in 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 this dark matter research laboratory. In, uh, in in this case in Yorkshire, in the northeast of England, though there are other dark matter laboratories across the world, including one in in a di- in a disused gold mine in, in in one of the Dakotas. Yes, dark matter is is studied, and and dark matter is as you know is the is the the missing mass at the at the heart of the universe. We experimentally know that it exists because it has effects. Um, that suggests that it makes up around 27% of the universe's mass. But beyond that, <laughs> despite billions of, of, of dollars of scientific budget, we know almost nothing else about it. Yeah. And I find that thrilling, this void, this huge underland at the heart of our knowledge. Um, well, right, and that, and that these uh, l- laboratories are being built underground yeah. where there is no light. Be, be, right to try to figure out what this <laughs> what is dark matter is. to replicate the darkness well i mean that yes it i should say of course it's a in a sense of fig, a, well it's a figurative darkness so they of course they have they have they do have light though not right. not, not right. necessarily within the experimental chambers mm-hmm. themselves mm-hmm. but um but the point of being underground is that that the the rock above these laboratories around them uh, seals them from the uh, atomic noise of the above-ground universe. So it, it, it sort of excludes a lot of experimental interference that would come in the form of um, of, of conventional atomic um, right. presence. So it's an attempt, as the scientists put it, to, to, to find the quietest place in the universe where they can <laughs> li- listen out for the whisper of dark matter. It's mm, so interesting. So there's a moment where you're having this conversation with this very intriguing young physicist named Christopher Toth. Is that right? Yeah. And you ask him, why are you searching for dark matter? And he says, and I think you say, without hesitation, to further our knowledge and to give life meaning. Mm. If we're not exploring, we're not doing anything. We're just waiting. And and then you said to him, is it an act of faith? Mm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, it's, yeah. It's partly because we were we were we were close to Revo Abbey, which is one of the mm. great Cistercian abbeys of, of my country. Um, and I, I'd, I'd driven past it earlier that day, and I just suddenly realised that these, you know, the monks sending their prayers up to an unseen god had such strong echoes for me with these scientists in their extraordinarily constructed 
in this case, sort of crypts cut into 270 million year old rock salt, um, a mile underground almost. And they too was were scrutinizing the universe for messages from a right. an, an unseen, unknown presence. <laughs> uh. be, beautifully faithful, both uh, across mm-hmm. 700 years. Mm. Um, there's a you, you some words also. You, you said there's something seemingly paradoxical. That darkness might be a meteor. You were really speaking more about the not 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 specifically about this dark matter laboratory, mm. but that since before we were Homo sapiens, humans have been seeking out spaces of darkness mm-hmm. in which to find and make meaning, and that there's something seemingly paradoxical in that that darkness might be a medium of vision, and the descent may be a movement towards revelation. And mm. it, it feels to me like that for you personally, there was something in that. Well, I I definitely was more changed and and learnt more um, about myself and 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 I think about the world more broadly speaking, if I can call it that, from from the years of this book than than any other. And that may have something to do with you know being forty forty three um yes. thirty seven when I began it thirty six and you know death death's been around as it has for everybody and. Um, so maybe the shadows are, de- are deepening a little bit in in that sense. But I, I, when you were reading those words, I was remembering being in the, the cave of the Red Dancers, which is this sea cave in Arctic Norway, hard by a, a huge whirlpool that is 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 known as the Maelstrom, uh, which which gives us that that word that is now generic for whirlpools. And so there are right. two entries: one into the mountain and one into the sea, right by each other. And in what we might call the Bronze Age, um, two to three thousand years ago, um, people travelled to that hard, hard place, and they made art in the darkness. Um, red dancing figures that leaped on the walls of that sea cave, um, and they crossed two thresholds. They crossed the threshold of, of of entering the cave, and then they crossed the second one, which is in a way the more powerful one, which is where light gives way to darkness and it was in once they'd crossed that second threshold that they began to paint mm. and and that to me i mean i wept i wept mm. when i saw those figures partly because it had been such a hard winter journey to get to them and <laughs> but uh but but also time uh shifted in in ways i've never really experienced before in that in that space it, this, this, you, you say actively to retrieve something from the underland almost always requires effort, effortful work, and I <laughs> feel like that speaks both to this the physical effort that you describe, but also this this move that we make as human beings, always reluctantly to go down, to go <laughs> under, to go in, to go into the dark, and yet, and yet again and again, find um, something essential there. Yes, uh, that 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 toil, I think, is is there throughout this book. Uh, nothing comes easily mm. in in the underland. Um, mm. f- few things are easily put there, and it's even harder to to to, to bring them to the surface effort deliberately, as it were. Though some things deliberately, ri- right? Yeah, some things rise unbidden, of- <laughs> yeah, uh, unexpectedly. But mm-hmm. uh, and I, you know, it 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 did take me literally years just just to do the writing i mean it just um mm-hmm. it it felt like a 
Uh, sometimes I watch archaeologists because I, I just love specialists. I love hanging out with <laughs> lichenologists and archaeologists. And mm. if you're a specialist, don't 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 come near me unless you want lots of questions. But <laughs> when you see an archaeologist uncovering a a bone, um, it's such tender care. Uh, uh, it's work, but they're using brushes and 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 and, and air guns and slowly, slowly, slowly revealing, excavating, discovering this um this this buried presence um and and the writing felt a little bit like that as well mm. so much to be to be brushed away first you're now i understand doing some work in hospitals in the uk to bring yes, nature yes. into the lives tell me tell me about that Oh, I'm glad that's crossed your path. Yes, mm-hmm. this this arises from a book called The Lost Words that I, I made yes. with Jackie Morris, um, which um, ha- has been the wildest wildest thing I've ever <laughs> been involved with in the sense that you you plant an acorn and a, and, and a wild wood springs up around it. Um, the, mm-hmm. the book has become so many things. Um, and among the things it's become, as well as b- being placed by community efforts into every pretty much every primary school in the British Isles now, um, it's been it's been taken into hospitals. It's been used in hospices. It's been used in dementia care. Uh, it was written primarily for children, but of course they're not the only ones who lack language. Um, pe- people... It's these words were right. It's it's, it's the, what we were talking about about language and yeah. the word the words that yeah lost words um, and 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 with illustration. Yes, sorry, I should. Yes, yes. so these were yes. twenty. The simplest form of the book is just twenty words that that fell out of uh, of a widely used children's dictionary because they weren't being used enough, and they were uh, words yeah. words for nature: um, mm-hmm. acorn, um, uh, bluebell, kingfisher, conker, wren, willow, and so we just we just wanted to make a spell book that might conjure them back. But yeah, and we did. Uh, Jackie is an artist. I, I've I've written these spell poems, and and they've they've gone into hospitals. So. Hospitals have have taken the art and taken the spells and and have designed them floor to ceiling across four stories. For example, of a of a new um, orthopedic rehabilitation hospital in in North London and also in a critical care unit in Wales. and And they're actually becoming part of the healing work that's done. So, so where where ch- where young children who are recovering from uh, orthopedic difficulties they, they 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 walk the corridors doing their physio. And so Jackie would 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 put a tiny mouse in each panel of the murals, and the children would move a little further each time to to, to find the mouse hidden among the buttercups and the <laughs> and the moths. And um, and then there would be places where patients and relatives could stop and read the spells um, uh, from floor to ceiling. And it's hearing the, the reports come back from also from hospices, terminal care um, contexts. Where people, I mean, it's really it's about nature much more than the book. The book is just a, a catalyst for that. But nature's power. Just I, I remember hearing a patient who was very close to death. It turned out, just speaking about trees, and he reached out. He was taken outside in the final days of his life, and he reached out both hands and he he gripped the trunk of a silver birch, and he he just spoke about what he felt pulsing through that tree and into him through the bark and mm. uh, uh and 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 that was an uh, an extraordinary moment for him and 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 to be reminded of that that consolation that the force that through the green fuse drives the flower as Dylan Thomas puts it was a mm. was a wonder a humbling wonder 
makes me think of um, work that's being done studying, you know, in, in, ho- in hospitals also, that if people have a window and can see a tree outside the window, their healing is uh, accelerated, that, they, that their outcomes yeah. are better, right? And also something, you know, I, I, I cannot remember where I heard this, but I've, I've thought about it so much since that almost, this is this idea, I don't know if this is true, but um, that almost every person, if you ask them about the happiest memories of their childhood, that, there will, that it will feature the natural world. I wouldn't. That wouldn't surprise me at all. I, whenever I meet a young person who, or indeed an older person who loves nature, I always say to them, "How did this begin? What you know? What triggered it?" And I, yeah, I was in Wales this weekend uh, trying to help young people begin a big, large-scale landscape regeneration project there, and I asked a young woman from a uh, seventeen-year-old from um, East London, and uh, she said, oh, "Well, my father grew up in Nigeria, and he had a garden there. He grew things, and we came here." And now he grows things and he talks to his plants and he sings to them and he tells me their names and, and, and he speaks to them as, as other beings. And, and then he took me to the river, this kind of grotty East London river, and we, we, we cleaned it up and <laughs> we, we, we got our gloves on and our waders on and we took stuff out of it and it made the river better. And I just thought that, that story of two things, of, of singing and speaking to the natural world as though it were... Uh, alive, which it is. Which it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then cleaning up a river, just so simply, cleaning up a river. Uh, I was incredibly moved. So I gave her two acorns uh, from the land mm. and I said, take these to your dad and yeah. give, the, give them to him from me. I'm curious about the language of spell book and spell <laughs> songs. There's a there's a, a an album that goes along with the book, which I just started listening to last night, and it's so beautiful. Oh, I'm so glad you think so. Oh, it's so beautiful. So, where did tell me about that? First of all, that that you know that yeah that that language of spells. Where where does that emerge from? Well, I could read I could read you a quick one. That's probably yeah. the best way to instantiate yeah. it. I did bring it. Um, I mean, spells are, are there to be spoken. That's they, they have an oral power, their, their utterances. Um, and I've always loved reading aloud and, 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 and writing t- t- to read aloud, as it were. And um, so, so in that sense, I wanted to write a language that tumbled on the tongue and, and turned, mm. turned around. And th- this is Wren. This is um, I'm sure you, your listeners know that the Wren the is this tiny, quick-moving bird. Um, we have we have we hardly see them in this country though there are eight million breeding pairs of them because they move so fast they seem to teleport so here goes Wren. <laughs> when Wren whirs from stone to furs, the world around her slows. For Wren is quick, so quick she blurs the air through which she flows. Yes, rapid Wren is needle, rapid Wren is pin, and Wren's song is sharp song, briar song, thorn song, and Wren's flight is dart flight, flick flight, light flight. Yes. Each wren etches, stitches, switches, glitches. Yes, now you think you see wren. Now you know you don't. <laughs> Did you commission the music um, alongside the writing of the book? No, the music followed it uh, as as much uh, much music has um, of many kinds. But but spell songs is is this uh, cornucopia of 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 folk uh, and other kinds of music adapting the spells and the, and the art of the book and mm-hmm. um, it just arose because people had read the book and 
and came and said, we, we want to make an album of this. And so they brought together these incredible oh, singers from around yeah. languages and, and parts of the British Isles, a lot of Scots and Gaelic singers. Um, yeah, and, they had, and we, I just said, look, do whatever you want. Just, you don't need to sort of set my words slavishly. Just um, let, let it come to life in, 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 in your uh, brilliance, however it does. Mm-hmm. And, and they, 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 I'm so glad you've, you've got it. Have a listen to The Blessing, which is the final song. Oh, I did. I listened to that last night. Yeah, it's, just, it's, it's wonderful. Um, and I'm, I can't wait to listen. Just have, have it kind of as a soundtrack. <laughs> oh, that's great. I'll tell them that you're listening. Yeah. Well, they'll mm-hmm. be happy. Yeah. I, I feel like we've been speaking about this the entire time, but I'm I'm curious about how how this this adventure, this investigation, and just these things you've been thinking about these years. Um, how again, this this is a this is a ridiculously large question. So just how you would begin to reflect on it, you know, how this has changed the way you think about. Like life and death, and and what hmm. it means to be human, how you move through the world, how you how you parent differently. <laughs> well, I, in a way, I can't remember what it was like before beginning this <laughs> river um, uh, river run, um, because each book flows really into the next and out of the last, as it were. Mm. So, um, I, I that it started twenty years ago, and I don't have much memory from before that. But yeah. I guess uh, I mean I am, as as you said at the beginning, landscape and the human heart. This this is to me an an inexhaustible uh, and eventually unmappable terrain. And of course, the heart is a a many chambered thing, and some of those chambers hold hold hate, and mm-hmm. landscape activates some of some of those hateful chambers too. We 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 see that in in the rise of ethno-nationalism, or we we see that in the idea that a a piece of land can be taken or broken, um, but but it also activates love uh, and grace and joy. Um, Raymond Carver, great American short story writer, who once described himself as a as a cigarette with a body attached to it, and um, and and did die of his his cancer. Um, he moved in his late life after a hard and problematic and alcoholic life to the Pacific Northwest and he he wrote with uh, extraordinary simplicity about what being by running water and among healthy forests meant mm. meant to him there those late poems of carvers a new path to the waterfall these are the, these are lucid documents of of healing mm. um what about what about your your children? How you how you speak to them? What feels important to uh, to show them, to to share with them, and even to learn from them? How do you? Oh, think learning from this, them all the yeah, time. Yeah, what you yeah. do flow, you know, shapes that. Well, we're we're off to the um, Extinction Rebellion uh, events that are going to take over London in the next week. Um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm going to be reading as as part of the the Writers Rebel. Um, uh, event and the children are going to going to come along to that. I, I've walked with my daughter on the the climate strikes, but where she's the leader, you know, she's the one. She's um, very active right. in climate politics. But I think most, when you ask me that question about my six year old, who features as a four year old quite a lot in in, <laughs> right. in Underland, and um, I took him up to these these spring sites near near our house 
um, where, where the book ends, the book surfaces, but we went back not so long ago. But there, there should be a place of life where water rises from wells up from within the ground, but they were, they were dead. Um, there was nothing, there was no life. They'd shrunk to a puddle and a, and a mud bath. And this is because of over-abstraction, you know, water that we use in our household, but also right. a, 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 an Anthropocene drought, really, that's gripping the southeast of England in the longer term. And he was, yeah, he doesn't really understand any of that stuff, obviously, but he was, it's just struck his soul to see a spring site dry and he came back um, so forceful, so clear about what needed to be done. And he has been on our case about water, <laughs> about water use ever since. And so it was such a fascinating moment for me to watch this encounter with an absence translate itself into a sort of the politics of a six-year-old, as it were. Mm-hmm. And, and, and translate an absence into... Um, into into an action, right? Into yes, into a forward motion movement. Yes, I I I I think that something that's on my mind um, these days, and I I don't know I don't know if this is a reaction people are having, is you know the the strike and the rebellion and 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 how to accompany that into this other word you've been using, which is the healing, right? Mm. The mm. The the stitching the, the stitching back together we have to do um, or or stitching anew. Hmm. Um, yeah. yeah what, how, are you how are you observing are you observing that question or? Well, I mean, I speak to you on from amid a, a, a political turmoil here that is is yeah. unprecedented in my yeah. lifetime and that has reached a pitch of yeah. bitterness and ugliness in the last two days, particularly um, as. Um, Following the prorogation that was that was deemed unlawful, yeah, I actually parliament. listen to I listen to the Today Show every morning. Right. Okay. Well, you <laughs> so know, I started I started doing it as a way to get out to get beyond American oh, politics, no. and now I have like two political tragedies <laughs> unfolding at the same time. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Well, yeah, one topic yeah. is carelessness, but yeah. um, uh, well, that's the topic we're in right now. Um, mm-hmm. But I, 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 there is a there is a new energy. Uh, of hope in the air. So, I mean, coming back to our underland metaphors, it's what yeah. Rebecca Solnit calls hope in the dark. Yeah. Um, and she points out that, you know, Greta Thunberg sits outside of a school lonely and and, 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 and nothing should have happened from that. But, but look what has happened. She points out that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is so inspired by the Standing Rock protests that she decides to run as a congresswoman. And... Mm. These unlikely cascades of consequence are what are what keep me going. That that and the acorns, um, and mm. and I do see hope in 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 the Green New Deal politics that is spreading fast across, uh, uh, particularly the global north. And there are huge problems already baked into it. We can we can see those, but they are being seen, and the mm. best of efforts are being made to address them. And I think two other things as well. I think that environmental justice is finally um, swung into line with social justice, that these have been hmm. seen absolutely as, as as continuous with one another. And secondly, that, 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 that a hopeful future is being seen, one where cities are not choked by pollution that is killing the poorest um, because decarbonization is underway, that, that instead of 
a green future being seen as a rabbit skin future of, of regression. It's, mm. it's a progressive one. These are the things that keep me going in the mornings when I turn on the Today program. <laughs> How about you? <laughs> okay, well, we'll stop there because I... <laughs> um, is there anything else um, you want to... Anything else you... Um, that just feels like you'd like to say out of this large meandering conversation we just had? It's been fantastic. It's been a joy of a conversation. Um, mm. um, and I, I feel we've... I feel that we 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 have created a a, a subtext here that we have mm. we, or or a word wide a word wide web that we have we have we have moved between unlikely points and joined them together and that mm. that seems like the best of um, stru- structures. Such really. a joy to have known you through your writing and to actually be in conversation. I think <laughs> one of my producers uh, has a question for me behind the glass, so I'm going to listen okay. for a minute. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um so in terms of um this this notion of um of all this learning about the landscape and and I think human wholeness and 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 the and the the, the spiritual nature of that as expansively yeah. as you want to describe <laughs> spiritual, um, are there ways you you would talk about um, you know even just kind of helping other people or maybe even I don't know I feel like you do this probably organically with your family integrate that or experience that. Um, kind of know that more organically in their own lives. How to, how to step into that yeah, more how actively? How to step into that? Um, mm-hmm. uh, well, I, I think it's it's a wonderful question, and I, I I devote a lot of my life outside my writing life to to that. Um, mm. I do I do have a perhaps naive f- faith in in the in the power of the natural world and of as it were the, the green world to um to, to speak straight to the spirit uh, and of mm. course there are historical textures and anomalies that that that, that neutralize that possibility in, in certain people in certain places but so I, I i believe strongly in getting people out so i co-founded a charity five years ago and we we take kids out of inner city schools and we take them on free summer camps to you know places they would never never otherwise see and just watching what happens, watching them grow <laughs> in mm. in a few short days, um, is is the is the hard the hard proof of that concept for me. So, mm. I think you know, be out, get out, look up, um, walk where and when you can, and um, uh, and be curious and and be be astonished by the world. Live in a live in what John Muir called a, a storm of wonder for a, a few minutes or a, a few hours each week. Hmm. Wonderful. I wanted to ask you, there was um, a dark matter physicist and poet who you mentioned in Underland, and I could never find that reference again, or am I imagining it? No, I, I didn't know the name. No, she's um, she's actually passed away now, um, oh, uh, okay. y- young, um, far mm-hmm. too far too young. Um, mm, and, okay. But I could read you the, the um, if I can find it, the 
um, uh, the, the, the phrases that that she yeah. that, that, that feature here. Let me see if I can find her. Yeah. So uh, perhaps I'll just read you the paragraph that features yeah. her. Um, it's just uh, four four sentences. Yeah. Dark matter physics requiring patience and something like faith. As if, in the analogy of the poet and dark matter physicist Rebecca Elson, all there were were fireflies, and from them you could infer the meadow. Hmm. <laughs> That's it. Well, Robert, thank you so much. I, I, I actually, I hope our paths might... Yes, yes. No problem. Oh, good. Okay, great. Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you for letting us know. Are you Are you good, Roger? Okay. Well, I'll just read you the paragraph that features Rebecca's work. Dark matter physicists work at the boundary of the measurable and the imaginable. They seek the traces that dark matter leaves in the perceptible world. Theirs is a hard philosophical work, requiring patience and something like faith. As if, in the analogy of the poet and dark matter physicist Rebecca Elson, all there were were fireflies, and from them you could infer the meadow. I know, I know. Yeah. Hello? Hi. Oh, I, okay, so I think it was recorded, but... Yeah, we, the paragraph we has got been cut recorded. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, I actually hope that our paths might cross in person one day. I have a, a love of Scotland and in uh-huh. particular the island of Isla. And <laughs> I'm always, I, I'm, I will be exploring more up there. So um, I just, I wish, I just blessings to you and thank you for oh, your work so much. Thank you. I, this uh, means a great deal to hear that from you. And um, and Cambridge is, isn't going anywhere and neither am I. So okay, if I ever get to Cambridge, I'll let you, you know. You, you come here yeah. and if you ever want any travel advice about about the Highlands, or, or okay. then let me know, Krista. So. All right. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. Okay, yeah. go well, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye.